Hello and welcome to the 30th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Monday 18th of November 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We battle through the trot smorgasbord that is the end of Chapter 8, Political Consciousness. This week I have the new Patreon Nicholas Green to thank. You too can help keep the good ship Alpha afloat by joining the Patreon gang gang for as little as $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. Patrons get special bonus episodes, the right to vote in the reading group series and other cool stuff too. We are closing in on the Magic 100 patrons, which means we'll be producing a second patron-only podcast every month. If you can't afford the dollars to become a patron, you can always help me out by doing some editing on the show. Hit me up on Twitter or Facebook if you're interested. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share, etc. 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 Okay, to the discussion. If you actually look on the YouTube picture there, you'll see that I did something like the first 25 episodes with, with the word strategy misspelled in the logo. I, I spelt it strategy with, with two G's instead of two T's. <laughs> oh, my God. oh my God. First as strategy, then as farce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> strategy. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so they had as well, like it, it, it took 25, it took nearly like six months of these podcasts being released for anybody to notice it, which may say something about <laughs> the content of the podcast. Now, here we have, we're back after a bit of a delay. We have a full panel here today. We have got coming all the way from Arizona, Arizona. We have got the two-headed beast that is Lex. <laughs> so, yeah. Hello. Hi, so- I'm the other head. Hi, I'm the other other head. This is like in Arizona celebrating our first anniversary for the Yay. weekend in the nerdiest fucking way possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Happy communism anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's good. Okay. And th- they're making some machine noises of his own was Puya all the way now from, uh, is it Madrid? Studying Hiya. here. Yes. In an autonomous zone, no doubt. Uh, we what? also <laughs> then have... And we have uh, all the way from Cougar Country, which is not true because it's more uh, a semi-arid desert, is Kyle Thompson. No, that's not where, that's where you grew up. You're in like rancher country. I don't know where the hell you are. Kyle, who are you and where are you from? Are uh, you? This is Kyle from General Intellect Unit, but also from Calgary, uh, which is, uh, you know, oil country. And uh, also there are farms, lots of farms around here. I, like I feel like far. every week Tom butchers where people are from. Why is that, Tom? I mean, I, I at least remember that, you know, Kyle's in Canadian. Right? <laughs> yeah, Canadian Texas. That stuck with me. Yeah, well, what I would say to you, Sophie, is that essentially what all of you say is of such uh, minute importance that my brain sorts it out and puts it in the bin. <laughs> yeah, so basically we... we what, do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, what are you saying? Uh, well, you roboted up there a wee bit, so I don't know what you said, and therefore I'll put you in the way again. Now we've got last week. The last time we sat down together, we had we we're we're struggling to get through chapter eight, and we got to there is a lot of crazy ass trot speak stuff going to hit us today, but there's no point in 
doing what we're doing if we're going to chicken out from the real super hardcore now that we've like 25 episodes in. So yeah, we're going yeah. to start here in chapter eight. I'm going to get into the fourth international and Trotsky, Comintarianism, bureaucratic centralism. Let's start with Trotsky's call for the fourth international and let's kick off with Sophie. Hopefully if Sophie's um, audio is working okay, let's hit it. Worth calling Sophie and Lexi. Oh, they're gone. Well, that answers that. Let me start then with um, Trotsky's call for the Fourth International. This background character of Comintern helps to explain the peculiar character of Trotsky's decision in 1933 to denounce it as dead for the purposes of world revolution and call for a new Fourth International. The peculiarity of this decision is the fact that Trotsky denounced the Third International on the basis of events in a single country, i.e. Germany. The First International had been founded on the explicit basis of the international tasks of the proletariat as a class. The second, more indefinitely, on the basis of the international common character of the proletariat's interests and struggles. The third, at least formally, had been founded on the failure of the second in World War I. To denounce the common turn and call for a new international on the basis of defeat in a single country was therefore something quite new even if the country, Germany, had been the historical centre of the Second International and home to one of the strongest communist parties. Trotsky seems to have imagined that the common turn would be defined forever by the disaster in Germany, as the Second International was defined forever by August 1914. The choice to support the existing states in a war did indeed turn out to be a permanent choice that defines the Labourite and Socialist parties to this day. But 1933 was not comparable to August 1914. By 1935, the common turn had abandoned the sectarian third period politics that led to the disaster of 1933 and turned to the People's Front policy. In spite of a brief return to the third period during the Hitler-Stalin Pact of 1939-41, the People's Front was to be the main strategic line of official communism permanently and still is today. The third period and its role in the disaster in Germany has become a matter of interest to historians and Trotskyists. In 1933, the call for a fourth international was therefore plainly premature. It was only with the People's Front turn as communists more and more plainly abandoned both working class, political independence and criticism of the Social Democrats that the Trotskyist project began to win broader support. Even then, the growth was limited. The Fourth International, founded in 38, could only account for about 7,500 organised militants worldwide. Part of the explanation for Trotsky's premature call for the Fourth International is that, as can be seen from his writings in the 1930s, he had become fully convinced that Lenin was right and he was wrong between 03 and 17. He was therefore determined not to do anything that could amount to conciliationism or postponing the necessary struggle to create a new party and a new international. Okay, so what do people think about it? Kyle, what do you make of all that? Uh, so first of all, I just thought it would be useful to clarify what specifically Trotsky had become convinced of by Lenin in that period between 1903 and 1917. So can anybody speak to that? I have no idea. <laughs> Is this not the party form? Is this not the Menshevik versus the Bolshevik 
1906. Well, it's between 1903 and 1917. That's a lot of time, right? So determined not to do anything that could amount to conciliationism or postponing the necessary struggle to create a new party and a new international. So yes, that is definitely the split, right? And it's also taking a independent class line, perhaps, right? Because it's against conciliationism. So that's, it's sort of like hard line uh, split with the second international, I guess. Was that the Bolshevik split? Were they not in the... Well, because they didn't split with the Mensheviks right away. Yeah. I, I feel like this is this is under-explained here. The rest of this stuff is fairly clear in terms of why Trotsky decided to split with the Third International and why that could be arguably premature. Uh, because, yeah, this... This line, the third period line that the, the Comintern took was a very brief episode in the history of, of, of the Comintern. Explain to people what the third period was. Now, this was the struggle against social democracy, right? This was the struggle against the Second International parties that the Comintern did during that period of 33 to 35 and then 39 to 41. So basically uh, declaring them to be like, what was it? Allies of fascism, right? This is social fascism argument. And then the line that they took generally was the people's front line, which was about class collaborationism uh, in the name of sort of like national struggles. Which was, I mean, a total, yeah. And that was like a total disaster and, yeah. yeah, the People's yeah. Front. It was the one that stuck around like all the way into Eurocommunism, right? Another important thing about the People's Front was that, or that period, was inadequate support of revolutionary movements where they sprung up. Because I think it was in the interest of a Soviet state at that time. Like here in in Spain during the Civil War and that period, you know, between the fighting with the Republicans and the Nationalists, the Nationalists were so well-armed in comparison to the Republican forces and the left forces. And the Soviet Union, you know, I think they were just pursuing their national interest with this policy with by not conflicting with the capitalist world. So what is, what we're saying here is that after whatever, after the, the problems of 19, uh, World War One, that the, the communist strategy was to attack the, the right of the, of, the, of the left, so the social democrats. And mm-hmm. this led to the disaster of basically the far right being able to, because they, they had basically started fighting each other, it led to the rise of Hitler, and that was a disaster. And after that, they changed tack, the common turn changed and said, okay, we got to all unite against Hitler. And it wasn't until after that had happened that the Fourth International actually started doing well in 1938. What, what year did Trotsky do the Third International? It was 33, and it wasn't until 38 then that it started to actually grow. That's basically his point. He thinks it was premature 
to have done it because of a disaster in one country. And yeah. the only reason it actually started growing is because of the basically total flip-flopping in strategy from the common turn. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And we're saying here that Trotsky, the final bit there, just trying to make sense of this, he's saying Trotsky prematurely did this because I don't see why he thought, why prematurely that would make sense if in 1933 they were still attacking each other, you know, the communists and the social democrats were attacking each other, which is kind of what Lenin's, I don't know if it was what Lenin would say, but, you know, it's where you have a strict class politics. Why would it? Why would he have done it in 33? Yeah, it's it's not totally clear because the argument here is that the, dis, the, the defeat in Germany was what precipitated the Fourth International and Trotsky did that because of his adherence to Lenin's line. But I don't see what the connection is exactly. I, I'm just not that deep into the subject that I can follow McNair's thinking. Oh, hi there. Did somebody say my name? <laughs> um, Yay. What, so what did we, what did we, um, <clears throat> what did we go over? So um, we're talking about the, the um, why Trotsky broke from the third international. Did we go over what Trotsky and Lenin disagreed about from 1903 from 19 to 1917. We, uh, we went over it to the extent that like we couldn't figure out what the disagreement was specifically. So oh. if you could if you could enlighten yeah. us, that would no. be much appreciated. That's simple. Uh, Trotsky was not a Bolshevik for th that point in time. He um, was not quite a convinced Menshevik. He had something of a middle position. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it exactly converges on like where the Menshevik opposition in the Soviet Union ends up, but um, like the ones that don't go with the czar. But Tr Trotsky was a sort of like middle figure up until that point. He he wasn't like convinced about like, I don't know, there's, there's a bunch of things that he wasn't convinced about, but I think you can basically sum it up to like Bolshevism, like even like Bolshevism in the earlier form where in the, in the debates between, you know, Martov and Lenin, Trotsky was a bit of a middle figure. And part of this was... I think it was something along the lines of um, the sort of permanent revolution line or what, well, what ends up becoming permanent revolution. But then if that's the case and Trotsky moved away from his position that he held in that period, why would he break with the third international over sectarianism? Like the third, third period politics were sectarian politics. Well, basically what happens is that there's like that tripartite structure of kind of Soviet politics after Lenin, after the sort of, I don't know, the Troika sort of dissolves, which is the immediate sort of, you know, triumvirate after the death of Lenin. And then there's, there's the right opposition, you know, usually Nikolai Bukharin is the figurehead of that. It's sort of like a controlled retreat position that, you know, we need kind of liberal institutions and capitalism. There's this left opposition position where we need the proletariat to assert its might against the peasantry. And uh, we also need like a world revolution. We need to be more aggressive with capitalist powers. And then there's Stalin in the middle. And Stalin was able to play these oppositional bits off of each other really well. And the reason why I think Trotsky ends up feeling this way about third period mode is because that's when Stalin starts to angle himself left and to start attacking the right opposition from the left. While doing this, he makes an enemy of Trotsky. He make you know, this is where, I mean, Stalin had it out for Trotsky for a long time, but like 
this is where Stalin starts to pick up some of Trotsky's like rhetoric, some of Trotsky's positions. He's he's getting outflanked by Stalin essentially in in uh, yeah. the internal politics of the Soviet Union. Yeah, but McNair is making the argument that this comes out of the German case, right? Um, which right. is what is confusing to me here. So I think, oh, well, I think that's what's confusing to McNair is that, like, yeah. the, specifically, the call for the Fourth International came from the failure of the German Communist Party, and I don't think I think what the the point that McNair is making, in essence, is that it's is that it's kind of irrational. It's hard to understand, like, why of all things, that is the thing that Trotsky decides to break with the common turnover. Because, you know, he goes into the example of why the common turn broke with the second international, which is like, there is kind of like a multinational implication, even though it was uh, an issue in one country, again, Germany, the Social Democratic Party in Germany uh, decided to support Germany in, the, in World War I. Uh, whereas Trotsky was kind of looking at this very minutiae example of the uh, German Communist Party failing, if I remember correctly. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think we've stressed in previous episodes that that's like the the role that the German Revolution had in the minds of the old Bolsheviks as being, you know, the guarantor of the revolution. But yeah, I, th I think that's, yeah, the way that McNair frames it is that Trotsky basically is so destroyed by the way that third international strategy pans out in Germany that he thinks it's it's sabotaging the world revolution. That's like the best answer I can give. Yeah, you know? so... I, I can kind of follow that argument that, like, you know, Trotsky framed this as a matter of strategy in Germany, but there was, in fact, in the background, uh, internal Soviet politics that informed his decision. And and that, that makes some sense to me. It's just, yeah, the way McNair presents it here is, like, kind of hard to follow. Yeah, and... <clears throat> it's almost flippant. It makes me, like, a little... I don't know. I don't know what's the word. Like, going by his argument, like, I can understand what he's saying, but it makes me a little uncomfortable. He's kind of like, well, he shouldn't have broke until, like, five years later, you know? He shouldn't have, like, basically predicted what, you know, <laughs> that this was going to get worse, not better. That Trotsky should have, you know, stuck it out with the Third International for another five years. Yeah, maybe he broke with the the, the International for kind of, like... um very surface level or maybe even like silly reasons, but there's, he did the right thing for not great reasons. It's, it sounds like, in my opinion, like, I don't, I don't see what the value of, of hanging out with a third inter international is at, at, you know, pretty quickly, like by 1920, you know, basically. I guess the point being that Tr Trotskyism in the left opposition takes the early third international as part of its position. Yes. And so if you're going by that, then then I guess I can see this argument. I think it boils down to we're not Trotskyists, so it doesn't make much sense to us why any of this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but just from, from a sort of if-then standpoint. Right. If you accept the first four Congresses, you know, then. Okay, let's move it along. Let's go on to common termism. Sophie, your, your mic is working. Do you want to give this a read? Sure. There is, however... Another, and in some ways more fundamental aspect, Trotsky's conception both of International Left Opposition, ILO, formed in 1930, and the projected Fourth International was that they were to be a revival sorry, and sorry. continuation of the common turn of 1919 through 1923. 
He documents that the first four congresses of the Common Turn were part of the ILO's platform and of its successors, the International Communist League. This unavoidably meant that the ILO, ICL, and Fourth International carried in their roots ideas of a chain of national revolutions starting now, perhaps somewhere other than in Russia, and of an international whose task was mainly to create parties of the Bolshevik type in every country. On the one hand, this meant that the feats and disasters in single countries formed the real basis of the critique of the Comintern and of the critique of those such as the Spanish POUM and the uh, French PSOP with whom the Trotskyists broke on the road to the Fourth International. On the other, the idea of tasks of the international as such in constructing international unity of the working class in action had no strategic ground in the Trotskyist ideas. A tiny group, of course, could do little practical along these lines, but the Fourth International was bound to appear as a micro-miniature common turn with a leftist version of common turn strategy. The Fourth International also inherited from the Third the utter centrality of the defense of the Russian Revolution and hence of the USSR in wars with capitalist states to its identity and program. In 1939 through 40, this position was to split it down the middle over the uh, Russo-Finnish War and the Soviet occupation of Eastern Poland, with Trotsky insisting that the minority in the U.S. and elsewhere should not have the right to express its views in public. The minority took a third of it of the membership of the U.S. So- Socialist Workers' Party, the largest group represented in the 1938 Congress, and half of the International Executive Committee elected at that Congress. Okay. Rip. Rip, we got them splits. Those splits, babies. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I just wanted to say that uh, this is starting to make a little bit of sense because what he's saying is that the decision to split over what happened in Germany created a precedent where events in individual countries became seen as central matters to split over in the future, right? And also that this framework that the Trotskyists inherited from the decision to split uh, over Germany meant that international strategy had no substantial figuring in their considerations and national considerations ended up taking up the the, the central point. So like the, the failure of individual revolutions became reasons for splits as opposed to international revolution. I believe that's what he's saying, yes. It's, it's funny here as well that Trotsky, the, he's saying here, Trotsky held on to the common turns structures. So they were not very democratic. Am I right in saying that? He says, oh, yeah. A revival of the common turn in 19, 19 to 23 and all those theses which we basically slandered in the previous episodes. So I, I think he gets into this in the next section, but part of what he argues is that like, the original ideas of the Fourth International and the left opposition were democratic and was founded on the idea of factions are necessary and good, or the implication at least. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of Trotsky's life, his last legacy is this split and silencing of a, of a minority faction. And so that kind of leads 
Trotskyism or the legacy of Trotskyism, especially in the post-war period, to just kind of capitulate a lot of the same issues that uh, Stalinism or, you know, bureaucratic centralism, whatever, like what all those same mistakes, basically. I, w- I would just asterisk that, and I don't think the first four Congresses of the of the common turn are like pro faction necessarily. That's I, true. I think the uh, ban on factions comes from that period. But it's also that is true. But I think it's also true that Trotsky's own foundational documents for these organizations. I think I think McNair goes into this, but basically he explicitly says democracy is key, and there's the there is an implication that if he is founding a left opposition faction, which is an illegal faction, <laughs> right. then why should he not allow factions in his own organization? Yeah. The, the overall structure of the argument is that, you know, pluralist common turnism ends up being like a contradiction in terms. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's hit the next bit. Bureaucratic centralism. Lexi, do you want to give a read? Let's flex it. <clears throat> flex it with the Lexus. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. All right. The refusal to accept Public factions in 1940 was in contradiction with the Trotskyists' own history. The Trotskyist movement had originated in the 1920s as an illegal public faction of the Russian Communist Party, and the ILO launched in 1930 had been an illegal public faction of Comintern. The Russian oppositions, indeed, had had as part of their core politics a critique of bureaucratism, albeit one that was cautious and imperfectly articulate. Part of this critique survived in the culture Trotsky sought to create in the ILO and ICL, International Left Opposition and International Communist League. League. The 1933 resolution, the International Left Opposition, its tasks and methods said that the foundation of party democracy is timely and complete information available to all members of the organization and covering all the important questions of their life and struggle. Discipline can be built up only on a conscious assimilation of the policies of the organization by all its members and on confidence in the leadership. Such confidence can be won only gradually in the course of common struggle and reciprocal influence. The frequent practical objections based on the loss of time in abiding by democratic methods amount to short-sighted opportunism, that education and consolidation of the organization is a most important task. Neither time nor effort should be spared for its fulfillment. Moreover, party democracy as the only conceivable guarantee against unprincipled conflicts and unmotivated splits in the last analysis does not increase the overhead costs of development, but reduces them. Only through constant and conscientious adherence to the methods of democracy can the leadership undertake important steps in its own responsibility in truly emergency cases without provoking disorganization or dissatisfaction. These statements are a standing rebuke to the post-war Trotskyists. Well, like, I, I, I don't want to interject, but, but like, that's like a piss take. I, I mean, yeah. like, I remember reading so much Trotsky when I was younger, and I hadn't really internalized what the Civil War meant. You know, I, a bunch of people tried to tell me, but, you know, sometimes you just don't want to hear what's wrong with your, with your, your new love affair. You know, you just okay, yeah. I know you all care about me, and you're listening. And but uh, I'll tell you what's wrong with your love affair. They got a lousy internet connection. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I could I could fix that. It's the only thing I'm good at. <clears> oh, <throat> but um, yeah. In <laughs> I mean, there's so much beautiful prose about Trotsky. You know, waxing poetic about how important democracy is, or this or that. But like, 
I just remember trying to stand Trotsky to like left communists and they would, their eyes would just glaze over and I'd be like, what, what's wrong? And they're just like, this guy didn't do that stuff when he had the chance. I think I might've had made the comparison to like Obama or like what people say after they're in power in the United States and all the nice ideas people come up with after they had a chance to implement them. And I mean, you see this, like the same, like kind of schizoid, like position on, on, on this sort of stuff in, I mean, it's kind of what Marxism is famous for at this point, like high-minded promises of, you know, democracy and whatever. But when it comes down to it, I mean, it's less democratic than bourgeois institutions. But it seems to me to be a reliance over overly on the political. Right. You know, when you have you deal with the people in, you know, Marxist trot group, whatever, right. the emphasis is entirely on the political. And does this political ruse help me to attract a person right now? And yeah. do I have to change every single tenet of what I proclaim as my beliefs to do it? And they go, yeah, all right, ground, yeah, let's do it. It's very instrumental. Oh, like nearly every organization I've ever come across is like that. And I think a point that McNair was making at the end of that last section there is that the decisions that Trotsky made at the end of his life both established a precedent for certain political situations to be the basis for splitting and also established a precedent for the suppression of political opposition within the organization. And so what the result of that is, is that you have this argument for democracy in the organization. You have the argument for the centrality of given political crises. And then you also have the argument for the suppression of democracy. Right. And that creates a kind of basis for infinite splitting down the line. Because there's strong arguments to be made on both sides and because of the suppression of minority factions in the organization, the only way to express your opposition on any given subject is to split. Um, or to become an alcoholic. Chris? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, can I read the rest of the page? Because absolutely kind of drives the point home. The aspirations of the 1933 resolution above were at least partly reflected in the conduct of the international secretariats of the international left opposition and international communist league and in Trotsky's correspondence. The secretariats were willing to accept partial splits and public fights in the sections. And Trotsky urged the creation of horizontal relations between the sections, as well as vertical section secretariat relations. However, Trotsky's response to the 1939 through 1940 minority that rejected Soviet defensism was bureaucratic centralist, and it drew on the idea of splits as purging and proletarianizing the movement that had been initiated in, in the split in the Second International, as we saw in Chapter 5. Trotsky was assassinated in 1940. His writings on the U.S. 1939 through 40 split thus left, as his last legacy to the post-war Trotskyists, bureaucratic centralism and the idea of the proletarianizing and purging split. So, well, we all know... We all know now all you have to do is to look to, say, Romania and Ceausescu and some of these places that, you know, by splitting and getting that pure communist party, that it really got rid of any of these people who were, you know, dodgy or had ulterior motives or mm. slightly on the fashy side. So, right. Yeah, yeah that's a great, great strategy. 
Yeah, it certainly <laughs> doesn't select for the most organizationally like adept and you know most craven mm-hmm. people that are willing to say or do anything. Certainly not. Not at all. No, that's not what that's not the legacy of Stalinism at all. <laughs> Wink. I mean, and no, the problem is Stalinism is not a broad enough category. No. And that that's no. that's the ultimate heartbreaker of Trotskyism is that you have this like heroic myth of the guy that was, you know, hard enough to go through with the Russian Revolution, but you know, ultimately, you know, oh, he he knew what was, you know, he knows what's wrong. It's this bureaucracy stuff. You know, in the '30s, he sounds like he sounds like a counselist, like Anton Panikowicz, about oh, we oh man, we have no models. All we have are these legacies of failures we have to learn from. You know, he sounds like a real mature guy, but when it comes down to it, you can't like not stand for the Soviet Union. Yeah. Like you, you, you can't defy the bases of like the third international when it comes down to it. That's actually the fault line. It's not any of these high minded ideals. And right. it, it leads a lot of people to question, you know, what would the USSR under Trotsky have, have really looked like? You know, certainly probably would have been less anti-Semitic to a degree. Um, you know, <laughs> no doctor's plot, maybe. But, you know, what would have been different? And that's a rhetorical question. I, I, I've a, I've a, a controversial thing to say here now. Like, do we bring this back to Lenin? The reason I say this is that I've recently been just just yesterday. I was watching a a lecture from Communist University from a few years ago by a guy called Ian Burchell, and he was doing it on Alfred Rosmer's Lenin's Moscow. Has anybody read this? I have not. I have not. No. And uh, basically, he was like uh, some French dude who who knew Lenin around the time. But he was saying that he went over and was chatting to Lenin. And after the 21 theses were released, and he was saying, oh, well, like when said to him, look, I think we shouldn't, you know, follow that split because it looks like the communist section in France are getting going to actually take over, you know, the left party, whatever it was at the time. And it's looking very promising for us to get in control of the social Democrats. And Lenin's like, oh, that's excellent news. Maybe I was wrong. He said, you know, I can't remember exactly the words he was saying. Maybe I need to rethink my 21 theses. But like, that was like 1920 or something. Right. Yeah. And he never rethought anything. I think it was 21. But it wasn't like, he wasn't on his deathbed when it happened. No. Yeah. it, It didn't affect him. Like and like they're making out this guy. Oh, Lenin was this really nice guy. He was able to admit his faults and all this, blah blah. blah. But did he change a goddamn policy? Right. Well, I think that's what matters. Not about whether he was nice in your in 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 person. I mean, I think I've said this before on this podcast, more or less. But I think Lenin's legacy is Lenin that is a legacy that's like complex. And if you're going to be a Marxist, you have to grapple with it. And I think we should try to grapple with it honestly. I don't really agree with like ultra leftists or anarchists who are just thinking he's an evil bad guy. But I also think a lot of the people in the milieu that comes out of this book, this McNairist book, they don't grapple with Lenin's legacy, honestly, either. Like, I think there's no way to separate Lenin from Stalin in so far as a lot of what Lenin did led to Stalinism and led to Trotskyism's Trotskyism's ultimate capitulation to Stalinism, really. So I think what Lexi said earlier kind of hinted at this and that like 
the problem isn't necessarily Stalinism. The problem is Leninism. And I am one who believes that Lenin the man was better than Leninism. But I also think, you know, Leninism is what it is because of what he did, you know. And his last testament, I think, is just a, a sign of regret, not a sign of not a sign of him being better, you know. <laughs> Like, I think he felt bad about what happened, but, you know, he, uh, he did it. <laughs> it part, you know, he's he, not alone. You know, the old Bolsheviks did it, all of them, to a greater or lesser extent. And I don't think Leninists can deal with this, honestly. And I, I, and I, I get why. Like, when you hear, like, anarchists or whoever finger wag about the evils of, of Lenin, I'm just kind of, like, roll my eyes. But, you know, that's not an honest, n- nobody's really dealing with this honestly, I think. Will we will we kick on? Anybody else have anything to say there? Just that there's already a strong disposition in any principled uh, small group to have the purifying split. And the Trotskyist uh, legacy just encourages that even more, right? Yeah. Um, so this is something that you'll find in a lot of small groups, small group psychology, that kind of stuff. But... Trotskyism just really, really encourages that. And you see this rhetoric being used to justify it all the way down the line to progressively more and more relevant factions. It gives it, it gives it theoretical legitimacy as well. Yeah. And yeah. And it, it, you know, one of the things that McNair is bringing up here is that yes, it's theoretical, but it's also very particularist right? Because it gives legitimacy to the idea of splitting over very specific issues in a very specific, like, national context. And that makes it even more likely to cause splits. Yeah. I mean, you see this in religious organizations too, right? These, like, micro kind of, these these micro principles that become the basis for the split are often... Not the Catholic Church. Not the Catholic Church. We stay oh, true. Of, we stay course, true over the millennia. Of course not, dear. Let it be known. Um, but uh, but the, these, these, like, these like micro-principles that become the justifications for splits are often not the real reasons for the split. No. And that's why I bring up Trotsky within the Soviet Union is because based just I highly suspect that his writings about, oh, it's a German revolution and this and that, probably has less to do with it than him being outplayed within the Soviet Union, like outmaneuvered. I just, you know, I don't, I don't think this, like, I don't actually believe that these splits are about what they say they're about after going through some of them myself, you know, like people hang their hat on a legitimizing kind of justification. That sounds good. That has a historical legacy, but a lot of times it's just an, an abuse of history to kind of justify narcissism of small differences. And when you don't have like a working class base or some kind of greater stakes involved to, you know, keep get people to like, you know, put their egos back in their pants, so to speak, and and try to have to work with people you don't perfectly like or that you can't completely control. This is the impulse. And I think I think that's, I guess, the reason why McNair like sort of harps on the idea that this split was too early or something. And he's not dealing with it maybe as as I would prefer him to, but basically that like McNair wants to argue that the the split from the second international was justified, but that splitting as just like a, you know, strategic kind of panacea is, is a nightmare. (laughs) 
I have a question for Sophie. Sophie, do you have complete control over Alexi? One hundred percent. Good. I'll let your imagination run wild with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Only sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. On this episode, you heard the team tune The Order of the Pharaonic Chesters and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats.